Ryan Carters is a former professional cricket player. He's also the founder of the charity Batting for Change, which focuses on alleviating poverty and gender discrimination in the developing cricket-playing nations of the world. He studied at Harvard University as part of the Sir John Monash Scholarship Program, and he's a father of three, all at age 30. Ryan, you are quite the busy man. Welcome to the program. (laughs) Thanks, Justin. Good to join you. Okay, so let's go back to um, where your love of cricket uh, first began. Can you remember, um, was it as a young boy that you um, started loving cricket? I was very young, actually. I used to have a plastic golf club that I'd run around the house with as a two-year-old hitting things. And so my parents decided to buy me a plastic cricket set as an upgrade for my third birthday. And there's still family video footage of me playing with my gran in the front driveway on my third birthday. Because she wasn't very very mobile, I'd essentially have to hit the ball and then chase it into the garden and then run it back to her at the other end and then run back to the stumps (laughs) and go again. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So that that passion developed very early on. Absolutely. I, I always... Loved all sports as a kid, but for some reason, cricket was the one that really um, ignited the passion. Yeah, okay. And where did where did you grow up? I grew up in Canberra. Hmm. Okay. And when did you first uh, start really getting into cricket? I always loved it, but as I said, I, I must have played every sport I could get my hands on in my first, hmm. you know, ten or twelve years. Um, drove my parents a bit crazy having to drive me all over town, but. I would say in my early high school years is when the focus really um, zeroed in on cricket more so than the other sports. And from then on, I really gave it my all. Uh, my big dream was always to, to play professionally. So I was so excited when I got the chance to do that after graduating from high school. Okay. So, so, um, so tell us about that. How did all of that happen? Well, I, I tried my best. I was playing for the ACT Comets, playing against the state second 11s. But because the ACT doesn't have a professional cricket team, I was hoping to get Mm. recruited by one of the other states. But really, it was a bit of a lottery. I happened to get lucky and get an offer from Victoria in 2009. So I was halfway through my gap year in England, where I was also playing cricket and had to get the first flight to Melbourne to start my new life in Melbourne as a professional cricket player. And I understand uh, you were were quite the handy uh, batsman and you dabbled in a bit of wicket-keeping as well. That's right. Those were always my, my two things in cricket. Sometimes I was an opening batsman and would stand in the slips and sometimes I would wicket keep and bat in the middle order. But I, I always loved batting um, and wicket keeping and, and, you know, tried to do both whenever possible. Okay. So as an opening batsman, I'm sure you've been asked this before, who's the fastest bowler you have ever faced with the new ball? That would have to be Sean Tate. Um, I played mm. against him in the Big Bash League a couple of times and He's not only fast, but his action is particularly unorthodox, so it's hard to pick up the ball when he lets go of it, which makes things extra tricky. Aside from Mm. that, I played with Brett Lee for a few seasons at the Sydney Sixers, so I was keeping to him in the matches, but also facing him in the nets, which was quite a handful. (laughs) I bet. So when, when when you are waiting there at the crease and you can see, you know, whether it's, um, you know, Brett Lee or Sean Tate, you know, coming in, what, what are you thinking? I just tell myself to to watch the ball. That's the number one thing. If you think of anything else, whether it's 
how terrified you are of getting hit or what you're having for dinner that night, then you know you won't be able to react at your peak. So the whole trick of batting is just to focus 100% of your energy on watching the ball, picking up where it's going to land, and then choosing your shot. What about um, some of the best batsmen that you ever played with? Uh, Steve Smith has to be Mm. the best. Um, he's just world-class and I was lucky to play with him quite a lot um, in the Sheffield Shield and Big Bash League. We, we had some partnerships together that were very memorable. What, what, makes, uh, what makes Steve Smith so good? Oh, I wish I knew. I might have tried to copy it. Uh, <laughs> I think no, his training ethic is um, second to none. He's someone who is really obsessed with cricket. He lives and breathes it, and he's always looking for how he can get a 1% edge over the competition. Um, mm. I think combine that with a huge amount of natural talent, and that's the recipe for Steve Smith. And what about, did you did you ever play with Ricky Ponting? He, he would have to be one of my favourites. I lo- just loved watching him bat. Uh, I didn't play on the same team as Ricky Ponting, but I played against him once. Um, it, it was a privilege to watch him bat from that close-up view um, behind the stumps where I was. Hmm. Yeah, another absolute highlight. I also played with some amazing um, batsmen from from overseas or against them, I should say. Particularly, yes. um, the, the, yeah, I, I played against India a couple of times and New Zealand and England. So I got to, got to see their best in action as well. Virat Kohli? <laughs> yeah, Kohli, played against Kohli. Um, Pujara, Shikadawan, um, Kane Richardson from New Zealand. And mm. yeah, Alistair Cook from England. Amazing. Wow. I did read that you had a record opening stand with Aaron Finch. Um, tell us about that innings. Yeah. So we were playing for the Cricket Australia 11 against New Zealand um, in a match at the beginning of the tour, which was them warming up for the test match against Australia the following week. Yes. And we, we uh, won the toss and batted first, and we put on 500 runs for the first wicket. So it was a long day and a half in the field for New Zealand and a, a very happy time for myself and Aaron Finch. <laughs> 500 runs. When you, what do you talk about in the middle of the pitch at the end of every over? And, you know, you're not, you know it's none for 500. Like, what, what more can you say to each other? Well, I think when you're starting out, it's all about getting ready for, um, you know, the challenges of, of this bowler or that bowler or what the ball's doing in the air. But by the time you've been doing it for five or six hours, it's more like, good shot, mate, keep it up. Yeah, that's it. I wonder what's for lunch. Yeah, can't wait for the drinks break. What are we doing tonight? What movie are we watching? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think it was at age 26 that you decided to uh, retire from professional cricket, what what was it that made you decide to hang up the wicket keeping gloves and the bat and and try something else? Give that, I suppose, give that dream away. I was always someone who had a wide range of interests. While cricket was very much the focus of my professional life for eight years, um, you know, I still did my university degree in my spare time, and I founded this charity, Batting for Change, and had a wide range of other interests as well. And what I noticed as time went on is that, relatively speaking, my passion to get out of bed in the morning and play cricket was starting to decline, whereas my interest in pursuing these other fields um, was growing. And I also really wanted to try and make a positive impact in my work. And while I had the opportunity to do that through the platform of cricket and through the charity Banning for Change, 
Um, I thought that I could elevate that if I made the decision to walk away, pursue higher education for myself, and then come back to Australia and, and try and try and make an impact. Yeah, great. Um, tell us about your undergraduate degree. So you're obviously you're, 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 you're pursuing cricket and trying to make a go of that, but at the same time you're you're at which university studying which degree? Yeah, I studied at Sydney University. I, I did a Bachelor of Arts um, majoring in economics. I also studied politics and philosophy within my degree. It was really yeah. a, a, a fabulous contrast um, with the intense focus of cricket on like a you know, physical skill versus that intellectual stimulation, particularly in the off-season, was when I did most of my university study. Did your philosophy studies help you as you were facing the new ball steaming in? <laughs> You're probably thinking, why am I doing this? Existentialism. Mm. Yeah, I think, uh, well, there's a philosophical theory that nothing's really real. The whole world's just in our heads. So maybe that would have helped to um, you know, lessen the fear of the approaching ball. Yes. Um, now, you, um, you studied at Harvard University after... Um, successfully getting a scholarship through the John Monash Foundation. What was it that made you apply for the scholarship? I was so excited to go and study overseas if I could make it work. Um, I wanted to go to one of the best institutions in the world for my fields of study, which is economics, mm -hmm. politics and public policy. Yes. And Harvard Kennedy School is truly outstanding. And I knew that if I went there, I could get the exposure to some of the best professors in their fields in the world but also some people with extremely high level experience who had just come out of the Obama administration a couple of years before. So to really learn from the best scholars, but also the best practitioners of public policy. Um, applying for the John Monash Scholarship was an opportunity not only to go and study at Harvard if successful, but also to join a community of John Monash scholars who I was lucky enough to have met a couple of them. And I was always so impressed by the way they thought about the world, by the way they, you know, designed their careers to try and make a positive impact, and also by the way they got on well with each other and collaborated. So I, I was stoked to get the chance to join that group as well. Did you work while you were studying overseas? Uh, I, I worked as a tutor uh, in economics um, while doing my yeah, master's. Okay. But um, yeah, other okay. than that, uh, my work was looking after the kids outside of, uh, you know, study hours. Yes, juggle, juggling uh, a very busy family life. So I'm, I'm presuming by your answer that the, the family moved over as well. Yeah, that's right. I was there, moved over initially with my wife and daughter, and then our second daughter was born um, two months after arriving in the US. So she's an American citizen, and um, our son was born after returning to Australia last year. And so, um, your, your, the years that you studied was that was that twenty eighteen to to twenty twenty. That's right. Yeah. And did, so, did you get caught up in the um, the whole coronavirus business? We did come home earlier than planned because, mm. you know, in March yep. in March twenty twenty was just when things were really starting to accelerate with. COVID and the outlook was getting pretty severe in the US. And we decided to book a flight back home um, because things were about to go into hard lockdown in Boston where we were. Mm. Really pleased with that decision. Um, it I was a, a terrible year for the US, really devastating to watch it on television, but great for our family to be able to come home to Australia and I could complete my course over Zoom. 
Yeah, okay. Do it online. I bet it was nice to uh, to touch down back in Australia um, and, and leave all of that behind uh, and, and come home again. Because, the, you know, as they say, there's no place like home, especially during a global pandemic. Yeah. when I, You know, when I touched down, I, I had um, a strong feeling of wanting to contribute to the coronavirus response here in Australia because it was just the time when things were getting very severe in Europe and the US. Yes. Um, just, just before they started to get bad in Australia. Uh, so I was pleased last year to be able to work for Centre for Policy Development, a think tank on, on the Climate and Recovery Initiative, which was an initiative to use the COVID situation as an opportunity to revisit Australia's approach to climate policy and decarbonising the economy and think about how could we have a win-win where we could protect Australians from the economic downturn while at the same time accelerating investment in renewable energy, energy efficiency and other measures that will help us create a more sustainable economy. Yeah, okay. So tell, tell us more about that work. It, it was a really exciting collaboration um, between the Australian Industry Group, uh, the ACTU, uh, Climate Works, Centre for Policy Development and several major government departments at federal and state level. So the idea was to bring together industry groups, workers, you know, policy experts and government to think about what's a really exciting path forward for Australia on climate change that will help us to reduce emissions but also boost the economy coming out of COVID. And is that is that work ongoing? Are you still are you still doing that? Um, I've recently started a new role. I'm now a consultant at McKinsey and Company based in Melbourne. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. But uh, in the in the meantime, that work is still ongoing um, with the groups that I just mentioned and they're they're up to a new phase of that work. And what, what's the sort of stuff, without going into the clients you're working with, uh, what sort of stuff are you doing at, at, uh, at McKinsey? I do a range of work um, across the public, social and private sectors, um, particularly focused on public sector work. So various engagements where government clients um, ha- have a problem that they want to be solved and, and McKinsey provides advice and guidance and also helps the organization to upskill internally to build the capabilities it needs to succeed Hmm. okay well i'm very curious to know about batting for change this is your uh charity that you set up many years ago what was the inspiration behind you setting up the charity at the time i was midway through my eight-year professional cricket career and i'd always thought that if i reached a certain level you know like playing for australia etc that it would be great to use cricket as an opportunity to also give back to causes that I believed in and I thought were urgent. And one of those was you know, global education, particularly in the cricket playing world. Because yeah. I'd travelled, I'd been lucky enough to travel in my cricket career you know, to India, to South Africa, to Nepal. And I'd seen the level of inequality in those countries um, is just enormous. And sadly, if you happen to be born um, in, a, in a part of the world, where your family is in extreme poverty, it, it's very hard to go on and get a high quality education. So the, the thrust for Batting for Change was how could we use the love of cricket in Australia to draw a cross-cultural connection and ask people to support education projects supporting those most in need in the cricket playing countries. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that it worked in practice was that uh, we invited initially um, fans of the Big Bash in Australia to log on to battingforchange.com.au and pledge to donate a certain amount of money, $1, $5, $10, for every six hit by their team in the Big Bash League. 
Yes. And then at the end of the season, they, they would pay up and all of the money would be used to support um, high-impact education projects that were overseen by the LBW Trust um, in countries such as Nepal, India, Sri Lanka, and South Africa. Mm -hmm. So the, the motivation for me was wanting to contribute to something beyond the sporting field um, in a way that would have a positive lasting impact in people's lives. I'd met people through my travels with cricket who had worked so hard just to complete high school, given the yes. um, impoverished circumstances of their family. And I thought, if these people have worked so hard to get to where they are, shouldn't we be doing a little bit to give them extra help to then take the next step to get to tertiary education, comp complete a bachelor's degree, and really set themselves and their families up for success? And so who works with you in the uh, – surely it's not just you. Have you got a, have you got a team around you? How do, what's the structure? That's right. So Funding for Change has um, always been a partnership with the LBW Trust, the larger charity um, that predates Batting for Change that I mentioned. And we – Batting for Change is managed by a committee that sits underneath the LBW Trust board, and we also have an employee um, who manages things in a day-to-day -day sense. And what we do these days is a number of key events each year. Uh, we have corporate challenges in Sydney and Melbourne where mm -hmm. we invite corporates to make a donation and then join in an eight-a-side afternoon of cricket, a, a sort of batting for change extravaganza, which has been very successful for the last four years now. And our newest idea is National Backyard Cricket Day, which we ran for the first time in January. And oh, that I was love a big the sound success. of that. Yeah. Yes. We had it, <laughs> We had over, um, on the same day, we had over 100 games of backyard cricket going on around Australia where people were using it as a fundraiser for batting for change. So you picture them in the backyard with the family, group of friends around, everyone makes the donation on the day, all the money's going to a great cause, and people are sharing stories on social media about how much fun they're having um, coming together for National Backyard Cricket Day. Mm. And the... The uh, premier event or the flagship event this year for that was actually played at the Governor-General's house in Canberra with the Governor-General, which Amazing. was uh, a, great way to, a great way to cap off National Backyard Cricket Day. I can imagine David Hurley, the Governor-General, coming in off the back fence. He, he'd have quite a good swing ball, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't say he, he matched the pace of Sean Tate or Brett Lee, uh, but, but he... <laughs> He bought some reasonable steamers. Uh, <laughs> You'd have to think that the backyard at, at Yarralumla uh, would be in good nick. Oh, yeah. You should have seen it. It was like, uh, yeah, one of the most <laughs> gorgeous cricket fields I've ever seen. They, the, the groundskeepers actually mowed uh, a strip to be the turf wicket in, in the middle of the lawn. <laughs> Um, oh, we've yeah. also played a couple of matches at the Prime Minister's residence at Kirribilli House uh, with Scott Morrison in recent years, yes. which have also been great fun and a great way to promote the cause um, and raise money. You have to be careful with Kirribilli House because if you really get onto one, you're in Sydney Harbour, aren't you? Yeah, it hasn't happened just yet, remarkably. Um, it must be due to <laughs> some, type, some type bowling from the PM kept the scoreboard down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, speaking of cricket venues, um, you, you mentioned that you've played um, internationally all over the world. What, what are some of the best places uh, that you've played at? Did you? Um, I, I would I would imagine the dream of any professional cricketer would be to play at Lords. Did you ever manage to play there? I did play at Lords. 
yeah, that was a real highlight. Um, that was in a friendly match one year when I was playing in the UK and mm. playing for the um, SCG 11. Was there a crowd there that, you know, when you're, when you're batting up, you've got to walk through the pavilion and they, you know, give you a little bit of stick as you walk through? Yeah, I, I didn't cop any stick on the way down, but it was nice to, to be walking down those steps um, onto the hallowed turf. But you know what? I also love playing in Australia. I think the SCG, MCG, Adelaide Oval, um, Bell Reeve, some of my favourite grounds in the world are actually in Australia. So what would what would be your pick of the Australian grounds for you know just just batting excellence, just loving being out in the middle? What was your favourite? Controversial, given it was never my home team, but I'm going to say Adelaide Oval. Yeah. Okay. Why? Why? Why was that? City of Churches. <laughs> I, I think they've done such a beautiful job with the redevelopment. It's got all the facilities of a, a world-class modern stadium, but it's still got that old Adelaide Oval charm with the big fig trees, the, the vintage scoreboard. Uh, it was just such a pleasant place to play and, and would really make me feel grateful to be doing what I was doing when I was there. Yeah, and shorter boundaries to the side. Well, I mean, that doesn't hurt when you're a batsman, does it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, uh, that's right. Um, so in, in terms of um, next steps for uh, the charity, um, what, can we look, what can we look forward to in, um, in the next couple of years? What, what are the plans? Well, we're really pleased to have raised over a million dollars and supported 2,000 people's education so far. But hopefully that's just the start. Um, in the upcoming year, we've got a corporate challenge planned in Sydney and Melbourne, but the biggest event will be next January. We'll be holding National Backyard Cricket Day again, uh, inviting people from all around Australia to go to nationalbackyardcricket.com, register their game, have a lot of fun, but also support such an important cause of, of educating people throughout the cricket playing world. And you, you, at, at age 30, you're still a very young man. Have you ever been um, tempted to... Uh, go into, say, federal politics or state politics? Is, have you ever been approached or is that on the horizon at all? Uh, no, it's nothing on the horizon um, at the moment. I'm, I'm really enjoying making an impact through the work that I'm doing at McKinsey um, ac across different sectors. And I think... Um, I'm honoured to be able to do this. Again, like I mentioned, it was it was wonderful to help with some of the COVID recovery policy last year um, at Centre for Policy Development. And I can also feel that I'm, I'm learning a huge amount in this new role and, and making a contribution. So I'm not sure what the future holds, but for now, uh, very happy where I am. And what's your advice to young people who might be listening who um, are through their or halfway through their university studies, they you know, might have a part-time job, but but are feeling a bit overwhelmed. I mean, clearly you've 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 done a lot uh, during your studies. You professionally playing cricket, studying, uh, doing lots of things. Um, what what what's some advice you can give people about you know taking on things? Is it is it just you know give it a go? I think it's it's about understanding what matters to you and, and what motivates you. Um, it's hard to work really hard if you don't enjoy what you're doing. And these days with the world we live in online, um, there are so many opportunities floating around, but I think the important thing is to work out what, 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 what you really care about and what really lights you up and then um, prioritise around that. There's actually a lot, a lot of time in the day and a lot of time in the week if, if you're doing stuff you care about and are really giving it your all. 
Now, probably the most controversial uh, rule in cricket pre-technology um, would be the LBW rule. Every batsman would have been on the receiving end of a couple of absolute shocking calls. You might have got away with a couple of couple two. What what are some what are some of the rules in cricket that uh, you would either like to change or see introduced? <laughs> um, new rules in cricket. Well, you know, I've got a complaint. I have a complaint as a right-handed batsman. Mm. For the left-handed batsman, you can't get out LBW if the ball pitches outside the leg stump. And exactly. so I feel like they're, they're, they're a bit protected from LBWs, the old lefties. So they maybe are. we could even the playing field by, I don't know, either getting rid of that rule and now that we're in the era of DRS with more sophisticated judgment of where the ball's tracking or else more in favour of batsmen maybe introducing another rule like um, the ball has to pitch close to the line of the off stump. I'm mm. probably just doing this purely from a selfish point of view because I got LBW too many times in my career. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. The other one is leg buys, though. I, I always thought it's a bit funny that leg buys actually count to the total because do you really deserve to get runs if, if you miss the ball and it hits your pad and then goes for four? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they, they don't go to the batsman, but they do accrue to the team total. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I love the timing out rule. I don't know if it's ever been used. Um, where And that the timing out rule is that, you know, if, if you're not – uh, not at the wicket uh, in time. Sorry, but you, you know you're out. I, I like that one. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you're a cricketer yourself, Justin, but I, I tell you that rule's given every batsman in the world nightmares over. I mean, literal nightmares. Um, it's a consistent dream for some reason that you can't put your pads <laughs> on in time and you can't get out there and you get timed out. <laughs> so it's never happened in real life, oh, but no. it happens plenty of time in people's sleep. <laughs> Well, as an opener, I mean, yeah, that, that wouldn't happen to you, but have you ever had situations where your, you know, your batting partners of, you know, whatever it is, indisposed uh, for whatever reason and, and it's been a close call? Oh, you have the occasional close call when wickets tumble. If you lose three wickets in 10 minutes, then, you know, the person who was trouble. casually trouble. Relaxing, relaxing in their... Um, you know, um, just in their shorts and a T-shirt, not even had their whites on, and then suddenly goes, uh-oh. Quick. Where are the pads? Where's the box? Yeah. Okay. That's right. Um, well, Ryan, it's been great talking with you. Um, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with, uh, with you today and finding out more about uh, a wonderful charity that you've set up. And also, um, it's not often we get to talk to uh, professional uh, sports people and You'll, the listeners will have to excuse my indulgence going going down a wormhole of um, cricket nerdism, but um, it's been it's been great to talk to you, and we wish you all the very best for the years ahead. So thanks for joining us on the Scholars today. Thanks, Justin. Keep up the good work with the podcast.